Hey folks, I'm really excited to share a special offer with my listeners today. Skip the trip to the pharmacy each month for your birth control. Get free delivery with free goodies. Yes, free, like Haichu, which are super tasty, chocolate, tea, and even more. Never run out of birth control again. <laughs> That's a big deal, y'all. Get Pandia Health Peace of Mind. Pandia Health makes sure no one runs out of birth control on their watch. Pandia Health brings you a pain-free birth control delivery right to your door. I know one of my biggest fears was making sure that I had my birth control prescription scheduled just right so I could pick them up before I ran out of pills. Ugh, seriously, never again. But now Pandia Health is here to help you out with free delivery of your birth control pills from the only, the only women and doctor founded, women and doctor led company in birth control delivery. Already have an active prescription at a pharmacy and insurance to cover the medications, Pandia's health delivery, automatic refills, and a reminder to see your primary care physician each year. Those services are completely free. If you ever need a doctor consultation because you want to change the method of birth control or the pills that you take and you don't have an active prescription, it's just 29 bucks once a year to access Pandia Health's expert, passionate doctors for the next 364 days. You save the trip to the pharmacy each month, plus you save the trip to the doctor to get your birth control prescription. Pandian Health can deliver to all 50 states. They take almost all private insurance, except for Kaiser. They do take family-packed PACT, which is also wonderful. Pandia Health is about care, convenience, and confidentiality. Head over to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com and sign up now. Now, don't forget the code. You get some money off if you get the code Sex Talk with Erica. That's Erica with a K. And you get $5 off the doctor consultation if needed. Because I'm a curious person, I had to ask about the name and I find it pretty cool. Pandia Health comes from the Greek goddess of healing light, full moon Pandia. Pan equals every, dia, day. Pandia Health has you covered each day of the year. It's called the Pandia Peace of Mind. Y'all, go check it out. Sex talk, Derek and Miley, cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sex just isn't good enough, no. Sex talk with Derek and Miley. Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. Um, Buckle in, people. <laughs> this is this one's gonna be a wild ride. I'm gonna I'm actually gonna frame this conversation before we get started. This entire episode is gonna be about uh, treating those who've committed uh, sex offenses or sex crimes. So if you if you for any reason get squeamish or or struggle with any of that, uh, you may want to step out this week. So we'll see you next time. But that being said, this conversation. I have brought my wonderful co colleague, Earl, to talk with me because <laughs> I didn't want to be alone in this conversation. Let's be real. I'm a little afraid. 
<laughs> I'm a little scared of you people out there. When we start talking about sex crimes, people usually get really, really angry. And we're going to talk about why here in a minute. But our argument is not going to be that we don't think people who have committed sex crimes don't need to be incarcerated. That is not our argument here. Our perspective is coming from having worked with this population and with really the genuine hope to create safer communities. Both of us finding that the systems that we worked in initially appeared to be the case, but actually what happens when people get treatment for committing sex offenses is very different than than that that hope. So I, I do want to welcome you, Earl. This is Earl Yarrington. Earl is a writer, almost finished with your degree in social work and sex therapy. I'm so glad you are here. And you like to write about the sexually taboo. That's, I mean, this is why we nerd out together. Thank you for being on my show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So again, folks, buckle in. (laughs) We're going to get into some deep shit today. So when you started working with those who've committed sex offenses, like what was your, what was your initial hope? I mean, even if you want to kind of introduce yourself to the folks so they kind of know who who they're talking to. (laughs) I uh, have been actually uh, interested in this area more about taboo sexuality and uh, what some people call paraphilia for a long time. But in my work as a professor in literature, which is really cultural studies, my students were covering some of these topics. And I started to look originally at just like visual media and representations of girls in media. And I went back to school, got another master's in that, uh, which is an interdisciplinary degree. And then I thought, well, maybe I have to learn about those that offend because I think most of the people online that look at this stuff and it's not, I'm not necessarily talking about illegal, even legal stuff don't offend, but what about those that do? So, and I have a whole history of, of, of abuse myself. And, and so uh, I, I'm no stranger to these areas. And, and, you know, working in prison, when you work in prison, there's very little that is going to bother you because uh, I have had to set and just the stuff that I would hear over and over again for eight hours or 10 or 12 hours in a day, you know, you just get to the point that you either can't do it or you, you just adapt to it. <laughs> you know, so I went in because I thought that once you get over the squeamishness of it, um, it is a really interesting field and, and sex offenders are actually very, very diverse. And I don't think people understand that because the media makes it sound like, well, first of all, if they say pedophile, they mean sex offender murderer, which is yes. not true at all. There they are use not, those terms interchangeably. Yeah. And pedophilia is not, there are people with pedophilia that don't have a disorder because pedophilia is not a disorder. Pedophilic disorder is. Uh, and even many clinicians don't know that or they don't care to know that. <laughs> so there's a lot there and that's really why I wanted to get into it because um, I wanted to have credibility because when I wrote about the stuff before people would just call me a quack, even my life experiences, you know, I'm just a quack. I don't know what I'm talking about. So I thought, well, I need to be where, you know, I have to be at ground zero. And if I'm at ground zero, then it's going to be, you know, at least for some people I would have more credibility. 
Yeah, I think I, you and I are actually, I think, similar in the way that what, what interested it us in the field, because many of my listeners know who listened before know that I have worked with uh, those who've committed uh, sex offenses. But I am saying that again for those who are new to the show, but also my interest kind came from this idea of like, if I can handle these sexual issues, then I can handle any of them. That was kind of my like trial by fire, I think was my 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 idea there. But what I found was very similar to you that I was just it is incredibly diverse. That every every person that I worked with in the in the prison setting was not necessarily identical to another. And it wasn't like there were similar system symptoms or systems across the board. And the level of trauma that we faced as treating folks who have, have committed these offenses was incredibly significant. So I think that there is, um, it really does prepare you, I think, in a way as a therapist in a very, very different way that I think shaped who I became as a therapist in private practice. Uh, at least I can say that for myself. Yeah. And I, and I think the other thing is that there, you know, my judgment, which I, I'm not fond of, is that there are some people I think in treatment that have done it a long time, therapists that have become, became very hardline because it's the only way they can survive. I don't particularly care for those people. I've run into them, but they will be very quick to point out everybody's, uh, you know, errors and judgment, but their own. And, you know, the thing is, is that uh, there's people who offend, but then there's this whole group outside that don't offend, that may be at risk of offending, and we never study them. So, uh, and yeah, and their behavior might be very different. So that's one of the reasons is that in order to talk, I realized even with some people, and I used the term minor attracted for a reason, because not everyone's a pedophile and attracted to 12 or under. Some people are attracted to 13 and 14 year olds. Uh, some are attracted to a whole spectrum. So it's easier to say minor attracted. But, you know, with a, a lot of, if you work with a lot of people like that, they, they would get upset. Like, why do you have to be in sex offender treatment? Well, you know, if I'm going to be legit, I have to have been there and studied that. And then I can also then turn my attention to those that are not offending and see what's going on in that world. So, um, yeah, it's all about prevention, right? And if there's somebody out there that maybe we're upset because they might be looking at a kid in a bikini, but they're not offending. Okay. We need to know that. Because maybe there's a way we can help people. Uh, some people, that will not be a good idea. Some people, it will. So it depends on individual, as you know, as a therapist, that there's no one therapy that works for anyone. And there can be some therapies that are dangerous to somebody. And there can be another of the same therapy that's wonderful for somebody else. So it's a tough job. Absolutely. And I, I think that when you start to understand that the perspective can be prevention, <laughs> I I think that the medical field in general, which I, I, we are a part of as part of the mental health field, the prevention actually can occur. <laughs> and, and I don't know that that many people broach thinking about preventing a sexual offense in the way that you are talking about? We know through the ATSA, which is the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, which is a great program. And despite the 
title, which uh, sometimes I criticize them and say, well, would a woman go to help for, you know, go to get help from an organization that's the Association for Promiscuous Womanhood? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Who wants to go to that? I don't want to go to that. You know, it's a label, right? But despite that, uh, they, they will tell you that people's arousal patterns change through time. They're not all the same. So I, let's say that I'm totally attracted to 10 year old girls or something. Um, I may be able to work with 10 year old girls and be totally fine. But then if I'm at home and there's one there, then I start getting aroused or I may get aroused under certain circumstances. So the, the idea in our culture is that people that commit these crimes are always massively aroused all the time. They're monsters monsters lurking in the bushes. Right. And that's rare. It's, there are some cases. I remember talking to Dr. Berlin, who a lot of people know is very famous, you know, while he was on the Jeffrey Dahmer case. And I, you know, taught, I spoke in person with him for at, at length. And yeah, he had the one guy who had like a foot fetish. And every time that guy saw someone's feet, he had to run into a bathroom. And, you know, we can laugh and humiliate people like that. But that guy was so tormented because he, he had this overbearing sex drive. So for this guy, chemical castration was a gift. He wanted to do it. And he was very much happier and much better with it. Um, but that's a very rare case. You know, we don't, most people are not behaving that way. So patterns of behavior, age, you know, sometimes when we get older, we are, we change. And so we, we know that people that are high risk, more dangerous offenders, treatment does nothing for. And we know that if you looked at, and I know it's going to sound like I'm minimizing, I'm not, but if you if you looked at, let's say, a couple of negative pictures of kids who ended up in prison for four years, that treatment is actually could be potentially dangerous for you. So the treatment is generally is good for moderate risk people, you know, moderate to high, usually moderate uh, treatment in some cases is effective for those individuals, right? So that's something that, again, most people don't realize. Absolutely. And I, I think that um, I don't think people envision that they, they will often sit in, I know, I know from having talked with people when they found out that I, when I had, which for the listeners, I no longer work in sex offender treatment, but when I did, they would say, why would you want to do that? Like that, the anger, the anger that I said, that I mentioned when I kicked off the episode, that why do they deserve treatment? And, and it is not about deserving treatment. It's creating safer communities. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I get quite a bit, and as I'm sure you have, I get quite a bit of abuse this way, um, quite a bit of abuse this way too. So not only do you handle the trauma of those cases, but then you have the the people saying, well, why don't you care? Why don't you care about child sex abuse um, victims? And why don't you spend time with them? And I thought, well, I don't have to. I was a child sex abuse victim for 17 years. Uh, and when they hear that, they just ignore you, you know, but... <laughs> no. Why ignore you? I well, don't understand. I have my own feeling on that, and, and I think it's it's warranted. Boys that have faced abuse, we are not included. So the thing is, is that I, you know, whenever I talk about my own, even if it's on the Nassau blog, all I get is silence or criticism that I'm self-disclosing. But if a, if a female says that they're shrouded with support, 
And it's very painful for males because, you know, we feel very much like our female sisters uh, in this area. But we have, you know, for instance, if you want to have a men's group, uh, abuse group in the state of Maryland, let's just take a state like Maryland, you will not find one. Uh, but there are all kinds of women's groups. So the message is clear on both ends. Men don't come forward. And if men do, there's no place for them to go. So basically, we're just told to suck it up. Or if we're abused, you know, it's kind of, hey, be the man. You know, you're a man, you know. And it, and I always say, it's what would, we, what, what would happen if we said that to our daughters, that if they said we were abused and we said to our daughter, good job. <laughs> I, what the... What the actual fuck? You know, this is the this is the this is that that I, I don't think often people understand how deep toxic masculinity presents. And you are you are clearly stating the case for that this is why young boys do not come forward. This is why they wait thirty five years to come forward with the harm that has happened to them. Yeah. And you may have noticed this. I was totally shocked when I'm statewide. And by the way, we can't say where we worked is kind of a gag order because if I say something like I worked with a person who's very notorious, if I said the name, everybody would know. So um, it puts people's lives in danger. So we can't, just so your viewers are clear, we're not quacks that are saying it because we can't. We have, you know, it's basically the state telling at least me not to. So, you know, yeah. So, um, but anyway, you know, what you, what I saw and I was astonished was that at least 20, 23, 24% of the uh, sex offenders I worked with were sexually molested when they were boys. And uh, I was shocked that quite a few were female offenders and they didn't even know that. A lot of times you had to tell them it was abuse. No, when you were 12, a 33-year-old woman shouldn't have done that to you. And they they didn't even know. I mean, they were kind of so, um, but domestic abuse, every single one of them. I mean, domestic abuse is a factor in sex offending. And we don't address that abuse because, you know, I think violence, again, toxic masculinity, you know, that's kind of cool. You know, I mean, it's not good to hit your kid, but nobody really is. We're not going to react the same way if you hit your kid. But if you touch them inappropriately, see, that's on a whole different level. And they're both abusive, you know. Absolutely. I, I think there's a massive misunderstanding about what trauma does to humans. As far as like the what I mean by misunderstanding, I mean collectively in our culture. I, I don't know me. We as we as therapists and, and psychologists, we get we get trained and we get we understand that uh, many of those of us who have been trauma informed. It can fundamentally change the level at risk you are for certain things to potentially happen in your life. It doesn't mean it will happen. It just means that you are far more likely to experience those things. And those those who've committed sex crimes have really, really, really intense trauma histories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for example, um, this is an issue, and I try to do this in my, my one article, but um, what I learned with working with, well, now it's been hundreds of sex offenders, is that a lot of times when you look particularly at child pornography cases, 
We have to remember that when someone is molested or abused, they may look at an image of a child, not because they want to harm that child, but because they identify with the child and those mixed feelings of abuse because they were abused. So there's a curiosity because they see themselves as that child. And yes, there is attraction there, but there's also the trauma. And we're not we don't see it that way. See, again, it's kind of like, no, they're doing that because they want to harm. They don't care. And, you know, again, there are some people like that. But what I've seen time and time again was there's there's this connection between abuse. And I think that sex abuse victims or survivors, when I've spoken to them, I've heard something similar. And that is, you know, it's it was humiliating. It was horrible. It was terrible. But there's there can also be an aspect of pleasure. And it's with the pain, it's with the horse. So it's confusing. You know, that's the whole thing. Abuse is confusing. So when you live in a culture of silence around sex, silence, silencing, silencing, and shame, then think about it. That's the perfect recipe for sex offenses. Absolutely. Listen to Earl, y'all. Earl is letting you know how deep shame, all of us out here dealing with shame around sex, this is how deep it can go. Yeah. It does. And, you know, the thing is, is very few guys I dealt with weren't ashamed. You know, I always say if you take pedophilia, what people don't understand is that I had this really wonderful conversation with a, a pedophile who's not offending. And, and this is what he said. He goes, you know, I'm a musician and he's a musician in another country. He goes, I can sit in a child's recital all day and thoroughly enjoy every performance and I have no arousal. I'm just enjoying the performance because I can't help but look over at the parents and they can't stand it. You know, they're like, they just want to get out because, you know, they may want to watch their kid, but they don't care about other kids. So, you know, for them, there is a genuine love and interest for children, but that can lead to inappropriate behavior because you might fall in love with them and then you do stupid things, you know, and a lot of people, when they fall in love, this is Valentine's Day after all, right? You do stupid things. And again, a lot of people can accuse me of minimizing but I'm not minimizing. There's a difference between, I'm explaining, right? There's kind of a difference between justification and then giving an explanation. You are providing context. Context matters. It is not minimization. Minimization is, well, I may not have, or I didn't, or I may have said that thing, or you think I said that thing. It typically has a defensive position, but when you're explaining something and providing context for something, it doesn't come from a defensive position. Right. And that's why, you know, even with like YouTube policy, Twitter, a lot of times we say, oh, if someone sees that girl doing this or a dancer dancing, you know, that way, uh, it's, it's a pet, they start talking about pedophiles. I'm like, well, um, for most pedophiles, the sexualizing girls, for example, wouldn't appeal to them because they wouldn't be into makeup and they wouldn't be into kids playing adult. Uh, they like children because they look like children. And that's another thing. That's more the general population than it is, you know, or interest in the general population than it is more a issue of pedophilia. At least that's my feeling after years and years of observation and study. Uh, that's a whole other area that needs to be studied. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I do want to talk about some of the articles you've written. And I, folks, I will make sure everything is in the show notes. So if you want to read these articles yourselves or find any of the resources that we're talking about, it will all be available to you. 
But I really want to talk about this article that you, that you wrote about Twitter's policy around uh, towards pedof- pedophiles and the key to crime prevention. I really want to talk about this because I think that this is this is directly in the wheelhouse of what you and I have talked off air and on air just now about how to make communities safer. Why don't you talk a little bit about the Twitter policy itself and and then maybe James Cantor's role and and then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so um, what happened is that what I said in the article is that about a couple of years ago, there was an individual who was a, a non-offending pedophile who let himself be known, and he was on Twitter. And they started a what was called Virtuous uh, Pedophiles uh, is a group that where they're saying, look, you know, you can live a good life even if you're attracted to children. And, and they were giving resources, and it was a good thing. But Twitter started to ban all of these accounts. And what happened is Jeremy Malcolm, who is, uh, was for the Freedom Foundation at the time, but now he runs uh, Prosasia Foundation, which I'm also a part of, uh, he contacted Cantor and a lot of other experts in criminology, experts, all about 10 or 12, I believe it was. And uh, he pulled together a letter that said to Twitter, hey, you know, uh, maybe we should give these individuals an open space to be able to communicate and share resources because that would actually prevent, would be likely prevent crime. As long as they're not, you know, like, you know, sending out child pornography links or saying sexual things about children, which they didn't. So um, there's, in terms of what Twitter did, why they decided what they do, we we don't know. They, they didn't want that discussed. But Cantor uh, agreed to sign that. And but some people think he drafted the letter. He didn't. He says, I'm not an advocate. I'm a scientist. And basically what the argument is, and is that pedophilia or attraction to minors is a sexual orientation. Um, this causes a big stir from a lot of people. But the fact is, for me, who's lived with this stuff all my life, I've seen it in my family. I've been around people. It functions exactly the same way. There's no way to change it. There is no way to change it. Now, people mistaken this, and they, they think that means that we're going to allow people to sexually abuse children, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. No. Right. They make this error, like the generalization, right? Like, this must mean this is what you want. So, again, I'm going to repeat to all of you. Earl and I are not advocating that people who have committed sex crimes should not be incarcerated. We are talking about pedophilia. We are talking about those who have not committed a sex crime and that this appears to be from all that we know from research right now. An orientation. Right. And we know that, and Cantor will point, Dr. Cantor will point to neuropsychology and uh, looking at brain scans. You know, the thing is, is that we do see distinct differences. And that doesn't mean that it's totally normal and okay to go out and assault children. It's not normal or okay to assault anybody, okay? But especially if you can't consent uh, because you're too young. So, but it doesn't change the attraction or the feelings. So, their idea was the key to prevention as Cantor says, is that we know desperate people commit crime because he says it's all about crime prevention. And if you take people and you take everything away from them, cartoons, you don't let them look at images, you don't want them to look at pornography, you don't want them to have sex dolls, and now we have non-existent victims, you are creating an environment where people have no outlet, 
they're highly distressed, and then they're going to offend, you know. <laughs> so in a way, our reaction to them by banning them from having community is contributing to child sex abuse. That's the problem. So we have to distinguish between, you know, I like what the warden said. He goes, you have to distinguish between who you're pissed off at and who's a danger to society. And frankly, people just find it disgusting right? So that's the reason. And then they scramble around and they try, even even people in our own fields, they run around and they try to get these sources, but usually these are dated. And, you know, I loved how Cantor put it, if I can recall how he said it. He said, you know, there's so many people that focus on what victims went through, right? Because it's horrible, right? I mean, you know, you, you've been abused as a child, but he says what happens is that they use their emotion in place of scientific research. And that's the danger that when we look at states, the focus is not on prevention. It never has. It's like they don't care about prevention. They, you know, we saw this in the prison systems. It's, you know, no one, you know, civil commitment has nothing to do with taking people. The only reason we have civil commitment for life is we just want to lock people up and say we're treating them, but the goal is just to keep them locked up for the rest of their lives. So the Twitter policy Really, Twitter went along with this, and there are a lot of people that get on and they, they hate this idea. They think that it's dangerous, and we still have some people getting banned. But the thing is, is if you look at that community, they don't say anything inappropriate. You know, the thing is, is they're there to give each other's resources. I've seen at least two or three on the verge of suicide that uh, got help, you know, and what, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to support them and give them tools. So that's that's a big part of it. Also, you know, it's something we deal with that I also, the Cantor has mentioned, mandatory reporting is actually not a good idea because it really ties the hands behind the back of therapists. So think about this. Let's all pretend right now we did something terrible to a kid. We Or we looked at child pornography. We went home one day and we looked at a bunch of child pornography. And some people don't like when I use child pornography and not CESM or CSEM. I distinguish because a lot of CSEM is cartoons and stuff like that. And and I I feel that minimizes child sex abuse. So I tend to use child pornography, not to eroticize it, but because that's what it is. And, you know, but let's say we did that. Well, I might then after I did it feel terribly ashamed and I might want to get help, but then I realize, oh my God, if I go in, they're going to report me to the police. And yes, there's the selfish reason I don't want to go, right? We're all selfish. But then, well, I have a family. I have a job. If I go, my family's income goes to zero. My kids are going to be targeted, right? So I won't go. And then the likelihood that I'm going to look at that stuff again, uh, it's pretty high. I'm going to go back and I'm going to keep looking at it. So this is another perfect example. It means well. It's when the people created it, it meant a lot. But if you tie therapists' hands behind their backs, we're actually increasing the probability of sex abuse. And that's really what is so troubling. Yes. You put this in the perspective of what what kind of frame can we put into our culture that would allow us to be able to treat people before they do something stupid? 
And when you tie the hands of the professionals who do the work, it, it again, it creates this island. It creates the isolation. It is fundamentally creating gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this country with a lot of things, it's so short, we study this a lot. But um, if you do advocacy building, we know prevention, they don't want to deal with prevention. So a lot of times it's very difficult. Like we have to think of the opioid uh, crisis. Finally, I know in the county where I live, they take that very serious and they're really trying with prevention. But even them, it's kind of, well, let's wait until somebody's overdosed and then we'll worry about it. Let's wait until, you know, we don't, our sun goes out, then we'll worry about the climate. You know, that we always wait until the, everything has fallen apart and it doesn't really make sense. You know, we, we have the knowledge, you know, we can reduce sex offenses. We can and some of the things we do are effective, but we could be so much more effective. And that's true with anything, crime, violence. We have the answers. We can reduce it. We just don't want, we don't have zero political will. To bring in something that we're dealing with, with popular culture, to, and to also reference what you had talked about, how we are unwilling to separate science and or fact from what we romanticize and or what we have emotions about. I think the conversation about Kobe Bryant recently is an excellent example and how people who have asked questions about how his legacy may be complicated because of some of the allegations that were leveled against him. And the people who asked those questions are fundamentally flamed. They are sometimes even threatened. And I, I think it is absolutely related to the conversation we're having right now. And the level of shame, we want to put it behind a wall on an, on an island. We do not want to talk about it. We do not, we want to never look at it again and, and pretend as if it doesn't exist. I even did, I remember doing a, a, an article called Pole Dancings for Kids, not not strippers. And, you know, of course, I did that a title to get people riled up. But my whole point in that article was that to assume that that dancing has a rich artistic history that's not related to stripping. And we know that in Europe, but that's the same thing. It drives emotion, but then we don't really think fundamentally whether the way we're handling issues like that are actually good for kids or good for us because there's so much emotion. And we know there was just a study put out by um, a professor, I think it's a philosophy professor, that said we're hardwired to throw away science in favor of emotion. Everybody is, in fact, 80 per, I think it's like 80% of our decisions are made by pure emotion. So we are very emotional creatures, and that's what I say about sexuality. You know, so many things about taboo sex is all over the place. But I find that if people were more honest about their taboo desires, that you would actually probably be much better off because if we, we could say that to people, we'd feel relieved, right? But the shame that comes with that of hiding things, not talking about them, can manifest itself in other ways. So, you know, whenever we're looking at emotion, emotion, the shame, I sometimes say, because I work a lot with issues of child attraction and those things in media and all that, I think the real fear is that we're going to be attracted to them. You know, I, I think I said it in one of my articles, I, I'm the kind of professor, I'll throw up a kid on a bikini on a screen and I'll say, okay, what do you think? 
And so you're not supposed to do that, right? Because everyone's going to say, that's wrong. And I'm sorry, it's a legal image. I'm not showing you illegal images. And I'll put it up. And um, and I had this wonderful response from somebody from Nigeria, I believe it was. And she looked at it and she goes, oh, she can't wear that. And I said, well, why can't she wear it? And I said, I see kids in this all the time, you know, on the beach. And she said, well, she can't wear it because she looks sexy and she's too young to look that sexy. And I loved that because, you know, what it said to me was that's the real fear. The real fear is that we're going to look at that and we're going to be attracted to it. And that freaks us out. And that's, and you know, where an American usually, my American students would say, oh, that's, we can't do that because monsters will attack them, pedophiles. And it's all about pedophiles and enticing pedophilia. I'm like, you can't entice, you know, I, I mean, where's this coming from? Right. But I really do think fundamentally it's fear, you know, it's fear that we're going to see something and we're going to be attracted to it. And that's part of it. But anyway, for me, it's a fascinating area once you you get over being squeamish about it. And I find I have to be provocative sometimes. I just have to be because that's what critical thinking, you know, as a teacher that has taught critical thinking for 20 years, you have to engage difficult issues. And if you're going to trigger, you can trigger. You're not going to, you know, we make too much of that. We've also, I just saw a report that's going to publication that says when we give trigger warnings, that's actually causing more harm. You would be better not to give the warning. As I gave a trigger warning before this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And the science tells me not to do that. Yet I still did because I'm afraid I don't want the comments on the internet. But people will listen to it. They'll listen anyway, because think of this. This is the thing about taboo, okay? If we say we don't want to allow allow kids to be in swimsuits online anymore, the problem is is that we create a taboo, and then people will want to look for it because, you know, we can find all kinds of men and women in swimsuits, but if you can't find kids, then it's almost like, hey, you can have a mansion, but whatever you do, don't open that one door. Well, all we're going to do is think about opening that door, yeah. I mean, I know that you've done this work for a long time, and I I tell my clients all the time, when I tell you to not think about the word orange, what are you thinking about? Yeah. You are immediately thinking about the word orange. like Because our brain is fundamentally made to do this, humans suck with ambiguity. We do, humans, all of you humans listening, we all do. We, We are the children's children's children children of the cave people that stuck around the cave and didn't go out to find out if it was a bear or a blueberry bush. <laughs> but some of us like me do, you know, we stick our heads in lion's mouths and we say, Oh, look at that. You know, what's but, this? I yeah. want to see what's in here. <laughs> not many of us survive, but enough of us do, you know, that it makes a difference. You know, So I use, we use the pink elephant one, whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. Right? And then, then, then you do. But yeah, I, I think that it's human nature to, you know, if somebody says not to do something, we tend to do it. So if we keep making more and more stringent rules, more and more people are going to violate them because it's human nature to do that. You know, at least enough of us will do that. Some of us won't, but a lot of us still do. Right. And there are so many opportunities and, and, and rabbit trails we could take this argument on. We could talk about how how this impacts the war on drugs. We could talk about how the diet industry has leveled this this same psychological uh, trap against us. <laughs> like, don't eat that food. What do you immediately want to do? You want to eat that food. 
it, it is very, very, very similar. And think about it. I mean, if, if you, you know, I was just thinking the other day, you know, uh, last night I, I saw uh, this pornography site and I thought, okay, I'm an innocent legal adult. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to just put in, and I think it was like Pornhub or something. I don't remember what it was. Uh, and, I, and I put in like, pigtails okay i'm gonna put in and sure enough you know you got the the big tall guy at six five with the five foot tall girl and you know it's they're adults you know but when you look online there's so much and there was just this recent study from czechoslovakia that showed 31 percent of men have a paraphilia 31 percent you know very high five percent which is high have fantasies of under a pedophilic fantasies that's five percent that's actually a very big number you know and those are the people who admit it remember even if you're taking a survey are you going to admit to that no you know you're not going to do that but then when you look at popular culture there's a lot of it actually there so i see for me i'm done being shocked or outraged over that stuff i'm interested in trying to figure out what it what it is you know i remember one world woman writing me and saying well i'm so happy that you are up to the latest trends in pornography you make us proud you know <laughs> you know i said well see and and you are minimizing it you know once again shaming somebody uh for telling you the truth you know, and, and that's, and it gets back to that emotion thing we're talking about. Yes. Hide away, put it on an island. I can't, I know you heard that, but I can't tell you how many times I hear that. And I still hear that. Why would you want to do that? Let's just put them all on an island. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at a sexting case, uh, and this is not uncommon, by the way. So you have a girl who um, took a picture of herself, uh, a kid, uh, topless or whatever, or with very little clothing. And what we found was that when the, her family got that picture, they all passed it around together, looking at it, saying, oh, how horrible that is. But I'm sure they didn't mind looking at it. And I'm sure they didn't mind, you know, and see, I'm very into the hypocrisy. That's why even I, we won't get into that here but in the cover of my book you know i have a girl with a snake on it and the reason i do that is it's the same thing i'm just playing off of the hypocrisy of people you know where we say we're against something but secretly you know we're kind of looking at it but then we're <laughs> so yeah it's, it's like oh it's the car it's the car wreck that i can't stop looking at it's just it, <laughs> folks come on science can help us prevent crime full stop <laughs> <laughs> we have to, we have to, we much like, just like you said earlier about like climate change and we wait until the sun goes out. Like we cannot, we cannot wait. We, we must as, as, I mean, I think that that's what calls many of us scientists to be kind of social justice involved. Like, is that this idea that we, we cannot wait. We don't want to wait for more victims. We we don't we don't want to wait for the sun to burn out. Right. And I think that with, you know, one of the reasons we say sex crimes are more heinous and maybe even why sometimes it causes more trauma is that our culture is built on a puritanical system, something we studied heavily in literature when I was in literature. And because, uh, you know, I have a PhD in literature and, you know, people always say, well, it's not like you did anything important, you know, but uh, when you study, you know, it's like anthropology, right? You're looking, the problem with puritanism is remember that fundamentally anything natural is evil. When I was a kid growing up as a Catholic, I was told that masturbation's murder 
Okay, so it's very important that people understand, think of the level of trauma, people, you can't explore your body, your penis and vagina are not your own, you can never touch them because you're a bad person. So all sex becomes deviant. The fact is, all of it is, it doesn't matter, it could be being married, right? So we set people up, and those that are struggling the most can commit crimes, right? And those that are most vulnerable become victims. So there's definitely a role in how we we run from the concept of human sexuality. So that's one of the reasons I spend so much time on it, because I figure, well, if somebody can read my book or my articles and survive it, then, you know, you're, on, you're in a good place to move forward and to start looking at, you know, being who you are. And then, you know, I, I one thing I liked in, in sex offender treatment that I thought was good for everybody, not just offenders, I kind Kind of like safety plans you know i think i think safety plan makes a lot of sense um i even have a safety plan i follow because the thing is is remember if you're a guy let's say that's not a pedophile but i can tell you the typical guy in prison where i was um basically touched his daughter or stepdaughter groped them usually once and they got a four-year prison sentence and 10 years on the registry Okay. Um, the thing is, is those guys will tell you they never planned it. They didn't think about it. They denied. And see, that's the thing. They deny their feelings and then it comes out when they're highly stressed. So the fact is, is that if they were more open, like me, if I was in that situation where for some, whatever reason I felt that I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling that I'm getting out of here because I would, I already would have my sexuality out in front of me. And that's why it's so important that we talk about this and we give people ways out so that they don't end up doing that. Or with that plan, they know what kind of triggers them or what makes them kind of go down that rabbit hole. So safety plans, you know, um, were great ways to um, protect, you know, to kind of make sure that you're, you know, you're keeping up with your own values. Yes. Beautifully, beautifully put. Okay, everyone, go out there. Go read Earl's writing. It's all going to be in the show notes. Everything that that you need to get your own personal work started and start making your own safety plans. It's not that we think that everyone out here is going to be going to com- commit a sex crime. It's that being able and prepared and discussing and bringing shame out into the open is fundamentally important. It reduces desperation, and we know des- reducing desperation reduces crime. That's given. Uh, again, we need shirts, we need cups, we need a hashtag. <laughs> Earl, thank you so much for being on my show today. And uh, thanks to those of you listening. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.